I'd like to read our scripture today. We're going through the Gospel of Matthew. So I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. It'll be on the screens. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. I do want to read just the next few verses for some important context. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. So this is an interesting scripture. Um, and it's kind of baffled people for many, many eons, really. Um, but as I read this, I, some things came to my mind. One was, you know, we all know folks who just can't let things go. You know, you know those, those types of folks? And especially if they're right, then they just, they can't just go along to get along. Right? They have to uh, cling, especially today. Everyone claims to have rights in our culture, right? And being a victim, it's almost considered a virtue. So you never let things go. Right? If, if somebody has you know, stepped on you and what's right, then you emphasize. You have not received what's rightfully yours. And that's just the kind of culture we live in. An example is, you know, I'm on Facebook, I'm a part of a lot of community groups to see what's going on. And, you know, there's one I read a few weeks ago. There was this woman, she was just outraged that Kentucky Fried Chicken didn't give her her honey mustard sauce. Right? <laughs> Because, you know, you're supposed to get it when you order. It comes free, and they forgot it. And so she, but she wanted to, to go and, and tell people, like, I didn't get what I was supposed to. She wanted others to join in her outrage and that, that violation of not getting her dipping sauce. She just couldn't let it go. Because it was her right to have a dipping sauce. Well, today's passage, it reminds us that as followers of Jesus, we, we are children of the Most High. So we have this amazing new identity as children of God, and we have freedom. But not freedom to demand recognition, to demand our place, but a freedom and a perspective to let mere earthly things go. To, to do good, for, do things for the good of others. Because we have a perspective and we have a place in the true kingdom of God 
So we don't take earthly things as seriously as other people because that's not where our hope is. Our hope isn't in earthly things. So we live for the true kingdom. Even while we have to live among earthly kingdoms, earthly systems, but we always recognize who Christ is, who we are, and which kingdom is number one. It's God's kingdom. And we never mix these kingdoms. We understand and have that perspective. And that gives us a freedom in no matter what we do. Now, the context of the scripture, remember, is that and we're in the part of Matthew's gospel that turns somewhat to now it's the road to the cross. Uh, Peter in 1616 confessed when, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And he says, no, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's who we say you are. And, and he is correct. But Jesus, he clarifies, you, you know, you're right. I am the Christ. I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for. But let me tell you what that means. That means I will go and I will give my life to establish God's kingdom in the hearts of those who follow me, to, to make uh, those who are far off children of God. But they, don't, they still don't understand it. They don't understand wait, how could Messiah establish God's kingdom with death? Because wouldn't he establish God's kingdom with raw power, just exploding the Romans, destroying the Romans with the raw power of the almighty creator? That's what they thought. They, that's what they, they were understanding, so they couldn't understand. Wait, how are you going to give your life? How are you going to even die? They don't understand this. And that's why, for this reason, as we move, as Jesus going to the cross, one of the things he's trying to do for his disciples is get them to understand what the true kingdom of heaven, how that is established, and how it subverts and doesn't work like earthly kingdoms. And that, in his prediction in, in, uh, that I first read in 2223, um, it says, And they were gathered in Galilee. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This is the second time he's predicted his death. And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Again, they were greatly distressed because they don't understand how could this work? How could the Messiah die? They're having trouble understanding. But Jesus is telling them beforehand, I believe for a couple of reasons. One is to help them mentally prepare. Um, but it actually hints that, that this is foreknown by God. That Jesus' death... It's not a surprise to God. It's actually a part of his plan. And by Jesus telling them, he lets them know, God is sovereign over this. And, and even though you can't understand it, God is going to use the death of the Messiah to establish his kingdom. Because, again, he knows about it. He, he tells about it beforehand. Messiah's glory... will be manifest in humility and self-sacrifice. Again, totally different than how the world works. And as they continue on, Matthew reports an incident that's only found in the Gospel of Matthew. It's not found in any other Gospel. And perhaps as a tax collector, um, 
Matthew was drawn to this incident and made sure he included it. It's, I, I just read it, but let me read it again. It's short. It's that in verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when Peter said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Again, this, this particular passage, incident, has baffled scholars because the question is, well, why does Matthew include it and none of the others include it? And why does he include it here? Like, how does it fit in the context? And not only that, but notice, we're not actually given a report of Peter doing this, but just that Jesus commands Peter to do this, and we assume that it happened just like Jesus said, but he doesn't actually report that. So let me give you some information, important information to help you understand what's going on here, I think. First of all, I'll take weights and measures for 200, Alex. Um, <laughs> One, one shekel equals four drachma, okay? And a drachma was about a, a day laborer's wage. So in today's, you know, you know, inflation and all that, let's say it's around $200, two Benny Franks, right? Um, so that one shekel that Peter's supposed to, you know, find in the fish's mouth would have covered both Peter and Jesus for the two drachma tax, right? Because a shekel equals four drachma, two drachma tax, two plus two is four, right? Still, I think, I don't know. Sometimes math changes. Um, <laughs> so interesting. So there, there, there are some things. Now, what's also interesting is, you know, some of you like fishing, some of you don't know, you know, Mike LaMontagne, he's always fishing. Mike, have you ever found a coin in a fish's mouth? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> But my guess is if we found the equivalent of $200 in a fish's mouth, a lot of more of us would be fishermen, right? <laughs> a lot of us would be saying, hey, Mike, can you take me out fishing? Because that's not bad, you know, $200 in a fish's mouth. So, well, what's the two drachma tax? Well, every year, uh, every male, every Jewish male 20 years or older was to give two drachmas for the upkeep of the temple. And that was based on Exodus 30, 13, uh, Exodus 38, 25, 26, where Moses collected money from the Israelites to build the tabernacle. Now, this is a less familiar text. And a lot of us, when we think of Jesus and taxes, we think of the more famous incident, which we'll get to in a few weeks, where, you know, someone came up to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, is, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus says, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and God's unto God's. We're, we're more familiar with that. that. But this tax is a distinctly Jewish tax. Let me, let me say it that way, because it goes towards the upkeep of the greatest symbol of the nation of Israel, the temple. So a good Jew, if you want to make Israel great again, you should contribute to the two drachma tax. So that's why Peter assumes that Jesus would pay this tax. So he answers, yes, oh yeah, my, my, you know, to the tax collectors, Jesus pays that. 
but it was a fair question because Jesus didn't always do things that were traditional, right? And at this time also, rabbis were exempt from this two drachma tax. So does Jesus pay the temple tax? Peter says yes. And after Peter's interaction with the tax collectors, he enters the house and Jesus, he, he engages with Peter first. And he asks Peter, hey, Peter, the kings of the earth, who do they collect taxes from? Their sons or from others? And Peter correctly answers, well, of course, from others. Because kings, they don't take taxes from their own family. They don't take taxes from themselves. They tax other people. And then Jesus says, ah, so the sons are exempt. The, 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 the children of God are exempt. And so that if we are God's children through Jesus, right, then we are a part of his family. So we are exempt from paying that tax, tax to, um, for God's house. Interesting. And then I think another thing that's going on here is rabbis often would do an argument from lesser to greater. And he, Jesus does that here. If the kings of the earth, if the sons of the kings of the earth are free, then how much more the, the uh, children of heaven would be free because of, of all of these things. Because the kingdom, like God is the king of kings and lord of lords, right? So he is above all kings, all kingdoms. And so there's this sense, this implication here that the oh, children of God, they're, they're free from all of it because they're citizens of God's kingdom. But then how does Jesus apply this truth? Does he say, yeah, Peter, we're sons of the kingdom, so we're exempt. Claim your right. Do not pay that tax. We're free from that. We're exempt from that. Is that what he says? No. He says, you know, we're, ex we're exempt from that, but so as not to cause stumbling, so as not to offend, go fishing. <laughs> you'll, you'll pay the tax. And again, and then he has this miracle to uh, show uh, and to, to provide because he didn't have that kind of, that kind of cash. So this is very interesting because this, this touches on a biblical theme. We see it throughout the Bible that our identity as God's children does not give us freedom to just benefit ourselves. We're free. We're children of the Most High. And we don't use that freedom for ourselves, for our rights, but we use it, we use that freedom to benefit others. We use that freedom to advance the kingdom because that's the kingdom that matters. Amen. You see, there's this, this clear idea that, yeah, we're in human kingdoms, we have human interactions, but our true hope is in God's kingdom. Our true purpose is to advance his kingdom. And yes, we are free. We have a new identity. But we have that freedom to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who was humble and gave his life to establish God's kingdom. So Jesus is our example. But this whole idea, let me give you an illustration. When I was in uh, college, one of a guy that lived down the hall, his father owned a whole mess of restaurants in Baltimore. And so uh, when we, he, he took us to his restaurant, his father's restaurant, 
his father owned the place. So he could, he had the freedom to say, I want to sit there and just go and sit. But he didn't because he, did, he wanted the good of the franchise, if you will. It's not good to do that if you own a franchise to kick people out and, and claim your rights to any table. It's not good for the staff because then the staff have to run around and, and then, you know, people who had reserved that table, they've got to kind of make them happy. It's not good for any of that stuff. And so you, give, you have the freedom to do that, but you don't because you want to use that freedom for the sake of the franchise, the sake of your customers, the sake of your workers. And so David, whenever we went out, that was the guy's name, who his father owned the restaurant, you know, he, he, would, he would ask the staff, he'd say, all right, we're here, you know, do you have a place for us? Don't kick any, you know, just if you have it, place that comes up. So this is this idea that Jesus says that his followers are free as children of God. But that freedom, it includes going along with things to not cause offense, to not have people stumble, because it's more important that they go into the true kingdom. The kingdom is so much more important, so much more important than earthly kingdoms, earthly governments, taxes, institutions, all of these things on earth are comparatively temporary and inconsequential. So don't get hung up on it. Really, that's one of the, the themes that we see throughout Scripture. Yeah, pay the tax to the earthly authorities so that we can get back to the true kingdom that lasts. We don't put any conflict or unnecessary stumbling block because the kingdom of heaven truly matters. And we have the freedom, so we could do that stuff. This attitude is reflected throughout scriptures. I'll just give you one uh, first, in addition to the scripture. First Peter 2, verse 16. I think it'll be on the screens. It says, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So the attitude here in all these scriptures seems to promote that, you know, Earthly power structures, they're not that important. We get all hung up on them. We put our hope in them, but they're really not that important. They're under God's sovereignty. So go along with them where possible you know, to avoid offense, to avoid conflict. You know, give honor and tax where it's due. Romans 13 says that. So that we can advance the true kingdom of God. And our true hope is in that kingdom. So I think that's one of the things we gain from this scripture, where Jesus, he establishes the freedom in the place of God's children, and then he immediately says, but don't get hung up on this kind of stuff, just to avoid offense. We don't have to be right. We don't have to establish our place when we are confident and we are firm in our faith of who Jesus is, who we are, and that his kingdom is the kingdom that will reign forever and ever. It gives us a confidence, again, not to promote ourselves, but to actually be humble and step back and, be, and, and, and focus on what matters. And so I think one of the applications that we need to ask ourselves is that our attitude towards earthly power, taxes, government, that none of these things are as lasting 
or as true as Christ's kingdom and his power. And I bring this up because, you know, we're going to be going into an election cycle pretty soon, if we're not already in it. And that there are, there's always been in Christianity and can use today this, this tension where some folks are most concerned about Christian influence in government and earthly power structures. That that seems to be our hope, even though Jesus says, don't put your hope in that. Now, you've heard that, maybe the buzzword, Christian nationalism thrown around. Now, it's important to define what that means because it can mean different things to different people. Some people use that term as just a smear for any Christian who engages in political sphere, sort of a dog whistle for anti-Christian bigotry. Um, But Christian nationalism can undermine a biblical faith and it can run counter to this attitude we see here. So what is it? What is it? Christian nationalism, it's a political ideology focused on the national identity of whatever country you happen to be a part of, but in the United States, it is the, uh, the national identity of the United States. That's the focus, as if that's the most important thing. And there's a mixture of our identity as Christians with our identity as, of our nation. And whenever that happens, it always lowers the kingdom of God. It, it takes the kingdom of God, which is above all nations, and it starts to make it down to like any other nation. I was really reminded of this last week when, you, you all know I have a heart for the Ukraine, but the, the patriarch, Kirill, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, In one of his sermons, he said that the Russian soldiers who are giving, who are dying, you know, to subjugate Ukraine, they are like saints and they are like martyrs for the kingdom of God. That is just an example of the dangers of when we mix our national identity with our Christian identity. We can come up with this thing where it just... That the, the things of the earth, they, they become mixed in with God's kingdom. And it always, it always reduces God's kingdom. And so for us, you know, it, Christian nationalism, as it expresses itself in America, it's not often like that. But it includes often a specific understanding of American history and American Christians. And the idea that we have a presumptive right to continue our historical dominance in American culture. So there's this type of nostalgia for a specific time in American history and a specific culture of that time where we as Christians were most comfortable and most privileged. And then there's this desire to get back to that time so that we we want power so that we can be in power again. And again, there's that mixing of Christian identity with American identity. But Christ's kingdom is so much bigger. Isaiah 40, 17 says that all nations are but a drop in the bucket. They're like dust on the scales to God. And so America will pass away, but Christ's kingdom will endure forever. And that's why we must not confuse the two. 
And moreover, Christ's kingdom was not established by Jesus taking political power. That's what the disciples thought. They thought, you're the Messiah. You're, you're, you are above all things. So you're going to seize the power. You're going to destroy the Romans. But that's not what happened. Instead, Jesus gives his life to establish the kingdom of God already, but not quite yet. Yes, there'll be a time when God's kingdom reigns supreme, but until Jesus returns, we are to follow him and not put our hope in earthly power structures, but rather to follow Jesus in his way. And so we need to be mindful of our heart attitude towards power structures. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, pastor, what does that mean? So how do we engage? You know, election year's coming up. How do we engage with this? Now, some Christians, their answer is withdrawal. I don't believe that is, is uh, what we should do. But like the, Men and, uh, the Mennonites, Amish, like they don't vote. They don't do any. They don't participate in the political process at, as all, at all as a way to express their trust in God's kingdom. I don't think that's the way. Because American Christians were exemplary in helping establish American democracy, and many American Christians worked to end slavery, to end segregation, and other evils. But they did so because they believed Christianity required them to work for justice. But they worked to advance Christian principles, not Christian power or Christian culture. You see, that's the key distinction between, I think, uh, proper uh, Christian engagement, political engagement, and, again, where we cross the line to trying to get power. Proper Christian political engagement, if it's to be Christ-like, is humble. It is loving. It is sacrificial. It rejects the idea that Christians are entitled to the primacy of place in the public sphere, that we have a presumptive right to continue our historical dominance in American culture. It rather places our hope in Christ's kingdom so that there is a freedom from needing earthly control, a freedom from, from putting our hope in, in power, consolidation of power, because we trust and we follow Christ. So, and we're so secure in Christ. Our faith is so strong in his kingdom, even though it's a countercultural kingdom, even though it's a kingdom that he established through his death so that even his disciples couldn't follow it. But we're so convinced of who he is and who we are and the freedom that we have, we don't have to seek earthly power. We don't need it. We just need Christ and his power to reign in our lives and in our world. So that's one application. I don't, I don't want to, the, uh, of this, this text, it guides us in our relationship with power structures and taxes and all of that stuff. But I think it also should guide our, um, our personal interactions. And so, yeah, we're changing gears here, but I think back to that question, I, I, do, do we always have to be right? in our personal interactions? Do we always have to get our way, especially when we are right? Like if, if, if we're trying to tell someone about Christianity and we know that they're wrong, we can say, yeah, I don't think that's right. But do we have to be acknowledged as right? Or can we say, you know what, let's just move on to something else for the good of 
that person and you don't want to put a stumbling block, you would rather have them, you'd rather be wrong and have them come into the kingdom than for them to say, you know what, you're right, but you're a jerk, so I'm out of here. (laughs) There should be a confidence to us that as a beloved child of God, these earthly things, earthly recognitions, they're not that big of a deal. I don't want to put up any barrier to the true kingdom. So if it means that, you know, this person's kind of going on and on and they're not right and all of that stuff, but I'm going to love them anyways. I'm going to still be present with them. I'm not going to um, destroy their argument. I'm not going to show how I'm more powerful than them, but I'm going to love them. Then that's what I'll do. Just like Jesus said, uh, Peter, that temple tax, it, I'm fulfilling all, like his mind is, I'm like, I'm fulfilling all that as sons were exempt, but just go pay it. So that there's not another stumbling block. There's not another reason for people to say, oh, Jesus does this. No, there's a chance for more people to follow him. And so if that means doing something, you know, I don't really need to do or having things this way that I I don't really prefer them this way, but whatever, it's no biggie. I don't have to be right or be acknowledged as right as long as I'm right with God. In this way, Christ is our example. Again, Christ's kingdom power, it's, it's not like earthly kingdoms or power. We need to get that into our heads. It transcends it. It establishes God's glory and power through self-sacrifice. And Christ gave up his power. He gave up his rights for the kingdom. And in fact, that's why just before the fish passage, remember, Jesus reminds them, hey, the son of man is going to be put to death. So I, and when we look at, when we observe the Lord's Supper today, Peter's going to be leading us in the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder of we, our leader, the one we say we follow, he laid aside his rights and power. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Many of you know this passage. The Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, have this mind among yourselves. And again, we've been talking about attitudes, right? Have this attitude for yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our leader, he is, I mean, Jesus is God. And what did he do? As God, there is none higher, there is none better. He lays aside those things, becomes, you know, takes on the form of human flesh and gives his life. That's who we follow. Again, even though Jesus had all power and authority, that's not what he used to establish himself. That's not what he used to establish his kingdom. He established it through self-sacrifice and humility. And that's why I included eight, chapter 18, 1 through 4, because the disciples, they started asking Jesus, okay, we're starting to get it. You're establishing your kingdom soon. We don't quite get it, but hey, who's going to be greatest in your kingdom? And Jesus says in verse 4, whoever humbles himself, like this child, so he brings a child, one who has the least amount of power in that um, society, 
He says, whoever humbles themselves like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So following Jesus, it gives us this humble confidence. It gives us a different perspective. I know it's, it's difficult for me, too. As we live in this society, as we, we have relationships with people and with government and all of these things, this, we swim in this, right? We swim in the earthly things. And how does the earth work? How does the world work? It's power, right? It's grasping power. Might makes right. All of this stuff. We've lived this. We know this. And so it's so hard when Jesus comes and flips that on its, on its head, and says, follow me in humility. Oh, you want to be greatest in the kingdom? Then you become least. You want to be first? You become last. And the temptation is always not to believe that, but to believe what we see, to believe the world we live in. When wait, no, no, might makes right. That we, we want to we be on top? We need to get the top positions then. But Jesus flips it on his head. And, he, and it's not like he just says, hey, you do this. He gives us the example. He does it first. He gives his life. He empties himself. So that in our interactions, we don't have to establish our rights. Even though we know, as children of God, there is nothing that will separate us from his love. We know that as children of God, that we are secure, that even if those earthly authorities or whatever take our lives as they took Jesus' life, we're still children of the kingdom, that our kingdom has no end. And so the key, though, is live it. <laughs> it's not just for, oh, it's heaven. It's now. We can live in a freedom now. But as Jesus said, it's not, it's not a freedom for ourselves. It's a freedom for the kingdom. So let's not get that confused. Let's not mix kingdoms. Let's always be true in our mind. God's kingdom is preeminent. It lasts forever. It has no end. And that's the kingdom that I'm most concerned with. I don't want anyone, don't want to put up any stumbling block for people to get into that true kingdom. Whether that's personal relationships, how we relate to government, anything like that, Christ is preeminent in his kingdom reigns forever and ever. Let's pray. Dear God, um, we come before you and we want to acknowledge first and foremost who you are, the preeminence of your kingdom. And God, as we go into this time of the Lord's Supper, we do so remembering your great sacrifice. And Lord, we even now struggle with the amazing humility and self-sacrifice involved in that to establish your kingdom, God. We, we're just in awe. And so in awe, we come before you. We ask that you would work in our hearts. You would give us a, such a strong faith in your kingdom that we would not be shaken by anything on this earth and that we would live for your kingdom first and foremost. And so, uh, Lord, we pray for your spirit. Move about this place as we enter into the time of remembrance of your self-sacrifice to establish your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.